Hi, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to the Who the Fuck Podcast. Inquisitive, authentic, unapologetic. A show designed to create connection, fuel compassion, activate change, and figure out just who the fuck you are. Hey gang, you're listening to the latest episode of the Who the Fuck Podcast. Our guest today is Elena Muckle, owner of Elena Nicole Photography and Lung Transplant Survivor. Elena and I met at college where we both participated in our annual art festival and were members of the literary magazine Montage. I started this show with the goal of telling truly authentic stories that will inspire others, and Elena's story of resilience and hope is one that does exactly that. Elena was brave and very open about her journey to receive a lung transplant two years ago after battling cystic fibrosis for 34 years. So, Elena, before we dive into the deep stuff, why don't you share a little bit about yourself with our listeners so they can get to know you? Sure. Hi, everybody. Um, Nikki, I just want to say thank you for having me. And uh, it's truly just a gift to be able to be here and to tell my story. And thank you just for piquing an interest, first of all. Um, So I am... Uh, a mom, a teacher, a photographer. I currently live in uh, Connecticut with my with my family. I have two little guys at home. And um, yeah, I was really excited to tell my story about having cystic fibrosis and going through a chronic illness from such a young age, uh, up until now, up until middle adulthood, uh, being a mom, doing it with children at home. So thank you. Yeah, of course. And thanks for the intro. Uh, It's crazy. You have so many different roles uh, in life. I mean, as we all do, but it, it, I think really compounds things when you think about how much you have going on in your life and then to add something so substantial to it. So for anyone who might not know, uh, can you explain briefly what cystic fibrosis is and how it affects the body? Yes, uh, sure. So on the science level, <laughs> it is a genetic disorder that is not contagious, obviously. It really affects the salt chloride channels in the body, and that doesn't really sound like a big deal. It, it really governs the salt and the water that flow in and out of cells. And like I said, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but every day that would mean that my DNA codes to produce like secretions in my sinuses, in my lungs, in my pancreas, and other parts of the body. It's mostly known as a disease that affects the lungs because that's the one that's primarily affected. Um, Over time, CF can cause chronic inflammation, chronic infection, diabetes, infertility, uh, and inability to keep weight on, lots of malnutrition. A lot of patients that you see with CF are usually thin, um, small, short, because of failure to thrive when we're so little. Um, It is super hard to keep weight on. It's super hard to stay healthy. Uh, When you are young, uh, you usually start out with needing a daily regimen of chest PT, and that's combined with aerosol medications. Uh, You need daily exercise. (laughs) Like I said about the, the weight, you need a daily intake of about 3,000 to 4,000 calories every day, which is absurd. Uh, just to, so you have like these little people trying to eat and eat and eat when they can't breathe. It's, it's a, it, is, it is a challenge. And, and that is to make up for all the calories that you don't absorb because of malabsorption. And then also as you get older, all the calories that you burn just breathing and just coughing. Also, over time, you'll probably need to add like steroids, IV antibiotics, antifungals, antivirals, uh, and then eventually oxygen 
And then if, you know, if things progress like they should, then a lung transplant. And so luckily for me, my progression was slow and it was steady and it was almost predictable, if that makes sense. Um, things sort of decreased with my lung function and my, my general overall health just a little bit at a time. So it almost went unnoticed. Sorry to interject, but I mean, honestly, I don't think I even knew about your diagnosis when we knew each other in college, because to me, there was nothing like that stood out that would have made it obvious that you were going through this and hearing you um, go through the list of of both the symptoms and the treatments that it's like, that's just, you know, a, a quick rattle off of things in your brain right now. You know, it's, I don't think that people understand how much something like a chronic illness is overlooked. And I mean, cystic fibrosis being one of them, I, I know plenty of other people dealing with other chronic illnesses as well. And this is something that, you know, people talk about having an invisible disease. And it sounds like at points in times, especially when I first knew you, that it was relatively invisible, we'll say. This is so much more intense than I even really understood. Full disclosure, I actually learned about cystic fibrosis, I want to say in like third grade. I read a book called Toothpick. And my friend and I had to do a presentation on it. And the premise was that the girl had cystic fibrosis. And so to your point about most people think it affects the lungs, that's sort of like what I understood about it. It's fascinating to think that you can go through all of that and nobody knows. It's true. And they, they always say sick lungs don't show. And even up until the weeks that I was preparing for transplant, I remember like walking into the surgeon's office at Duke, and we were about to have our consultation. And I kind of like caught him like looking at me like, huh, like you don't look sick. And then he looked at my my chest x-ray and my CAT scan. He's like, oh, well, your lungs look like crap. So, yeah, but yeah, like, I get why you're and, here. But the, yeah, no, totally. And so that's the, the, the irony, the joke there. It's like, you don't look sick until it starts to show and until you start to lose a lot of weight and until you start to like really need oxygen and stuff. And then it starts to show. But for the most part, I was able to camouflage myself really, really well throughout high school, throughout college, throughout my twenties, throughout while I was teaching little guys in school, even I would just go to the bathroom and cough, cough, cough because <laughs> I had to. Um, but nobody really knew unless I disclosed it. You know, you use the term camouflage and I, I really like that a lot. It represents so well what people in general do to normalize their lives, especially when you're dealing with something like this. What sort of gave you that sense that you didn't want it to be known? I can't really say for sure. I think I just didn't want pity. I didn't want people to feel bad for me. But the other side to that too is like I'm I'm coughing a lot. <laughs> and it I mean it was it was kind of kind of gross. So I, I didn't want people to look at me like I was always sick. So I just was able to kind of keep it under wraps and and I would, you know, do my job every day and then just kind of like go into my car and sort of like let it go. And so now that I'm thinking about it, I just wanted to be normal, you know, like everybody else. And I don't know, I didn't want to have something so outstanding about me. Of course, people like on the inside, like all my friends, family, you know, they knew. And there are CF patients I know that keep it from everybody. I mean, even, you know, significant others. And so that wasn't ever me. The people who needed to know, they knew. My bosses always knew. But that was it. I didn't really feel like the need to really disclose it. It sounds like it's 
about having a sense of belonging. It's hard because, you know, we we set this bar, this unrealistic bar of what it means to be able to belong. And belonging isn't about, quote, being normal. It's about being who you are and being around people who accept you for that. And so I think part of the battle is identifying, you know, why are we having this behavior? Is it to protect ourselves? And it that camouflage was also a little bit of a shield, it sounds like. It definitely was a shield. It was also another way for me to escape, if that makes sense. I remember being on a photo shoot, and this was when I was really starting to spiral downward. And it was my last photo shoot before moving across the country to Duke for my transplant. And I remember just getting in the car and like putting on my oxygen. And I was like, I made it an hour. Like I did it. And no one knew why I was sick, not to dupe anyone, not to manipulate anybody, but so that I could have that escape for that little bit of time where it was about who I was on the inside versus like my illness. Does that make sense? Oh, for sure. You know? um, I just wanted to be good at something. I wanted to have my, my identity of who I am, but have it not be affected by my illness because that's just not me. And that's okay that other people really, you know, they rally behind cystic fibrosis or, or other illnesses and they do everything they can to raise money and they, they take on um, a bit of that persona and that's okay. That's just, that is not how I wanted to choose to go about my life. I wanted to be Elena who also happens to have cystic fibrosis, not Elena who has CF. Like, oh, yeah, yeah she has CF. I, I, I love that though. I like that you said, you know, your identity isn't your illness. And so you don't want to use that for yourself because using that for yourself also enables other people to use that for you. Is that, would you say that's an accurate statement? Yes, yes, I would. And I, I never wanted to be that. I wanted to be so much more than that. You are. Um, you can see that just sort of in the day to day about, you know, being a mom, being a teacher, being a photographer, you have all of these aspects of your life and so foundational to you as a human, that it's more that you're in a position where this is the hand that you were dealt. Unfortunately, you have to deal with it, but you're not going to let it stop you from doing the things that you care about or being with the people that you care about. Because you said you were two when you were diagnosed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you feel like there was a point in time where you recognized that there was a difference for you between how your daily life was going, living with CF versus a, a kid who didn't have it? Yes. I would say it was probably after college when things started to go downhill with my health. Like I said, very slowly, very kind of predictably, but I remember it was just like a few years after college and people would be getting together for weekends, you know, college friends would meet up and I'd be like, yeah, no, I'm sick again. I just got a fever out of nowhere. Sorry guys, I have to cancel. Um, that's when it started to really hit me because it wasn't in college. It wasn't when I was in school, but that's when I really started to feel the difference. Like, yeah, yeah, I really need to take care of myself better. And just to your point before, I thought it was worth mentioning, you know, I was diagnosed at two and my mom was pregnant and I was the toddler running around and the doctor kind of sat her down and my parents had no idea what cystic fibrosis was back 36 years ago. So he sat them down and, and he said, you know, you know, your daughter SCF, my parents were like, okay, cool. What is that? You know? Okay. <laughs> and so he explained it and he said, you know, it's, it's going to get really stressful. She has a life expectancy. I, I don't know if it was 18 or 21 at the time. He said, just, just go home and enjoy her. And most people get divorced and, you know, you'd be 
wise to kind of keep her safe and everything. And my parents left there. Remember, my mom is like six months pregnant at the time with another child. She doesn't even know if the other baby is going to have this genetic illness. Nobody knew where it came from. No one had, had, no one had ever heard of it. And I think my parents decided that day, they're like, hell no, like we are not going to accept defeat. And they never raised me to live in a bubble. They never raised me to be scared. They wanted me to go play sports. They let me travel across the world if I wanted to. We had the means to be able to do it, you know, through school trips and whatnot. So like I was able to do things. They let me go to college, like things that that some other people never get to do. And I was allowed to do it, even though, you know, there was this enormous elephant in the room. And I really credit them because even to this day, like they just never let me show, they never showed me, sorry, their anxiety. It never rubbed off on me. It never really only until now with COVID and they've worked together and they never got divorced and they made it work. And it was a way for them to prioritize what was really important. And so like sickness is not all bad ever. So many bright spots, so many miracles. My wife was diagnosed with chronic migraine and our life sort of was just put on hold. She couldn't do much of anything. And to the point about, you know, the doctor giving your parents sort of the divorce rate, it's similar to having a partner with a chronic illness, having a child with a chronic illness and how to not be resentful about that because you know that it's not that person's fault. That person wouldn't be going through this if they had a choice, but it doesn't make your emotions as somebody who's part of that inner circle any less valid. The important thing is that you address those emotions if you have them. And so to your point, like a lot of credit to your parents. I mean, they must have some really good communication between the two of them to go through something (laughs) so significant, right? And then not come out and to come out of it together, not only supportive of you, but supportive of each other and supportive of your brother to, to make sure that you as a family unit were able to maintain a sense of, again, quote, normalcy. I know probably a fraction, but I know how challenging that that can be because the worry is constant. The stress is constant. The panic is constant. And even if you're not like in Mm -hmm. one of those heightened states, it's still lingering always just below the surface because you know there is a truth to illness and it makes it extremely daunting when something starts to like tip a domino and you're like, oh my God, what's the next one going to be? It requires a lot of strength and resilience and mental energy and being present, honestly, is what I was thinking when you were saying all this stuff about your parents wanting you to keep doing things and being active and experiencing life. It's like, that's what life is. Life is meant to be lived. Life is meant to be something that we are here for and not looking at all of the what ifs and maybe if this happens, then that'll happen. Like in my experience going through not only Holly's chronic illness, but other traumatic experiences, I can look at my life and be like, Mm -hmm. holy shit, like I'm actually so much more present and I feel a lot more enlightened because I've had to stare down the barrel and be like, what the fuck is going on right now? And how am I supposed to get out of this? How am I supposed to switch the way that I think about things from this sort of instilled anxiety from the circumstance into something that is meaningful and powerful and gives me some sense of fulfillment? And I think your parents allowing you to do those things and and giving you the choice to do those things clearly has impacted your drive. What you're saying is spot on. And as I'm thinking about this recently, knowing this podcast was coming up, you know, I was thinking about all the kinds of strategies that helped me through it. And I will say that 
I would say sort of like the lingering in the background. I wouldn't really even call it a strategy, but it's sort of the air that I breathe, if you will, is that there was just never this fear mongering. There was just never that. It was always, let's keep this really positive. Let's have good communication and let's just get through it together. You know, let's keep our priorities straight. Let's not like really fight, you know, like that sort of thing. And so that really sets the stage for a healthy mindset and going through something as traumatic as an organ transplant. So yeah, that is sort of like the background noise, I would call it, because I, I never struggled with the anxiety piece. I never struggled with the depression piece. I just always had great support. And then also you nailed it too, like all these things to live for. And I think even to piggyback off of that is that finding meaning and purpose in your suffering. I mean, that is the name of the game. And if you can find it, you can trick your brain into pretty much getting through everything. I was just listening to a podcast today where somebody said, when you're going through a breakdown, you're just about to have a breakthrough. And it it really resonated because I felt some of my lowest in the last 18 months. And I have been trying to figure out how do you regroup from this? How do you come back from this? And it's like you see other people going through moments in their lives that are challenging that you imagine they must want to feel defeated, but they're still going. And I will be completely candid with you, Elena, like seeing your video, it was right after your trans, relatively right after your transplant and you were on a treadmill and you were running. I remember just thinking to myself like, holy shit, that's amazing. Like you've just gone through such a major surgery. You looked happy. When I saw that, I was like, I really want, I want to to regroup and I want to have a conversation with Elena about this at some point. And I sort of stuck it in the back of my mind. Like we hadn't talked in a while. It was It would be sort of crazy. I remember sending you probably a note about it. But part of it is like looking downstream and being like, how amazing is that, you know, to know that you were doing something as part of your recovery, but you were doing it with such an apparent joy. Tell me what that was like for you. I mean, there are so many moments like that, the treadmill being one of them. I just always remember being like, if if I get this lung transplant, like I'm going to be an athlete. I have the heart of an athlete and the body of like a 90 year old. Like I'm going to do, you know, whatever my purpose is in this world, I'm going to do it. It was just years just lying dormant. I remember being in the hospital on and off in my 20s and 30s and looking outside and watching people go to work and thinking, do you know how lucky you are? that you can go to work, that you can have a career that you might even like, right? And so I just always swore that I was going to make the most out of it. This was a gift. I didn't deserve it. And so I was just going to try to do everything that I could to, to be the best version of myself. And I have a couple of comments on that. Number one, um, you absolutely do deserve it. I mean, I think everybody deserves that. The fact that you were not willing to take it for granted is what makes you even more so. And I don't think that the word deserving is even the right one, but it, it it fits. And I'm so grateful that you had the opportunity to benefit from a transplant. I know that that can be an extremely significant battle for a lot of people to even be on a transplant list, to even have the opportunity. The fact that you recognized how significant it was and you're like, I not for a second am I going to take this for granted is just very telling of who you are. You know, you said 
do you know how lucky you are? And when you were looking out the window, my eyes started to well up and I got goosebumps because it's like, God, like, you know, there's so many times where I just feel so down and out and like just unmotivated and thinking about somebody like yourself and realizing like, yeah, we all need downtime. We all need days to feel miserable about stuff. You know, it's human. But I don't have a justifiable reason to not be doing something physically. And I think that, you know, we do take it for granted when we don't have the same experiences. Yeah. And even just being disabled as a young person, when everybody's starting to, you know, start their lives, right? I was retiring from teaching at 27, wow. right? I mean, people were just starting to get married and, and have careers and, and whatnot and fill in the blank here, right? And I just remember being like, I am dying. I'm just starting to die now. And then as soon as that thought came in, I was like, no, I'm not. Like, we're not going down that road. Can you talk to me a little bit about like your process in terms of even getting to the point where you were going to have a transplant? So I would say after college, I spent a few years teaching and uh, and that was great. The problem with that was the early mornings was the germs in the classroom. It was the stress. It was like the constant Monday through Friday, nine to five type of deal, which really stressed my body. Um, so I ended up retiring when I was 27 and I was lucky that I could take it and move it to a tutoring business. So I could really use my skills and work with kids, which is what I loved to do so much. And I could do it on a one-on-one -on -one level that was a lot better for what my body needed. And then eventually I didn't know if I could get pregnant and I did. And that was another ordeal as well. And so like these little, little by little, as time went on, my, my, my health in general just declined. My lung function declined. And like I said, don't even notice it until one day you're like, oh crap, like I can't get up those stairs without huffing yeah. and puffing sort of thing. And so it just happens. It happens really slowly for me. For others, you are healthy, healthy, healthy. And then you nosedive off a cliff and you're on the transplant list and you never see it coming. So for me, I was always grateful. Like it felt like I had a little bit of control over it. It was like, okay, maybe in two, three years, I'll be on the transplant list. But they say when you know, you know, when you're ready, you're ready. And so I remember going through two pregnancies were very risky. They were very difficult. I was on oxygen at night, I think for both of them. But again, like I was in such denial of how sick I really was. And I was just like, well, you know what, if, if I'm going to die, I may as well die in the pursuit of what I think is so important and one of the most beautiful things that this life has to offer. And that's how I perceived it versus like dying because I like fell down a staircase and my shoe was untied or something. Like I'm like, yeah. I'm not going out like that. <laughs> that yeah, sense? no, and I, I appreciate it. And so the pregnancies, I would say, of course they were worth it. They did weaken me significantly. And um, when I would say after my second son was born, I was so malnourished. And I think, I, I mean, I was just so thin and I couldn't gain weight. And my lung function was probably in like the low 30, 30 percentage wow. area, um, which if you think about it, I mean, that's like breathing with half of one lung. That blows my mind. Pretty much. So that 
it, it, I mean, but it is amazing what the body can do to compensate. And after going through everything I have, it is just incredible how much the body wants to survive. So anyway, that's, that's a whole nother topic, but, uh, but yeah, so I, um, so I had, I had the boys and I eventually needed a, a G tube, which is a, it's a tube that's inserted into your stomach where you can receive supplemental yep. feeds from formula like honestly like baby formula <laughs> and that's when I really knew like okay but okay like little by little these these freedoms are being sort of stripped away from me little by little you know I couldn't work anymore little by little I had to have the g-tube I had to have a, a metaport put in little by little like my body was becoming not my own anymore because I needed so much I used to have a physical therapist come to my house where I would go to a place and get chest physical therapy what is chest physical therapy what does that entail? Sure. So when your lungs are so full mm -hmm. of crap, what? So imagine like you're congested. Imagine your whole, like all of your lungs just being full, almost like you have diffuse widespread okay. pneumonia. So at all times, it's almost like you're kind of breathing okay. through a straw. Um, so when you're breathing at, you know, 30% lung function, like it's time to put on some oxygen because your body is working so hard to compensate. So chest PT would be a way to sort of, so a, a physical therapist would, would take their hands and clap on your back and on your chest and on your sides in order to help all the junk kind of come out. Oh, okay. I, that's interesting though. So it could be a physical therapist or a okay. respiratory therapist. Just as a side note, there was a movie that came out five feet apart, which is about two cystic fibrosis patients. We're like the OGs of being six <laughs> feet apart because like all this Corona stuff, like that's not new to us. We've lived our life like this for a lot of our, our time, you know, especially as we're older and we're becoming adults and the disease is taking its, its toll on our bodies. And so we, we, you know, we don't go near each other. And I know everything about some of my friends and we're so close, but I have never met them in person because it's just too dangerous for us to be near each other because whatever germs I have that I colonize, like I can swap with their bacteria or their viruses or their um, fungal infections or whatever. So you just don't want to be near each other. Wow, that's that's challenging though. Is it like virtually impossible to have a cystic fibrosis support group? Live? No, you can. I mean, some people yeah. some people do it yeah, and yeah. we do it outdoors <laughs> or something. But, uh, but for the most part, most people are pretty standoffish in terms of like in-person meetings, just because it is pretty risky. I actually know two CF patients who are married to each other. Wow. Pretty amazing too, that they just decided, you know what? Screw it. Like we're going to go after life. And this is, this is who I love and we're going to do this. And so it's the same sort of, um, same sort of thing as the movie. I actually haven't seen it. I do tell people to, to go for it because it really, it's just so enlightening about what CF patients have to deal with. Yeah. And I, I appreciate you sharing that piece of it too. I mean, you mentioned earlier that you went to Duke for your transplant. Can you explain that to me? Because um, I, my assumption when I saw that was based on the medical facilities and capabilities. Great. So I always saw a CF team in New York City and when they started dropping the words lung transplant, you know, this is about maybe five years prior to when I actually got transplanted, but they tried to ease you into the idea of it because it's so major. And so, 
you know, they give your name to Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, which is where I was seen for a couple of years on and off. Honestly, I would go there every six months just to check in. And so I, I would go there, they would check my lung function, they would keep in touch and they would be like, you know, I know you feel like crap, but you're actually not sick enough to get a lung transplant. And I remember thinking it was clear as day to me. I was like, I'm going to wait on this list for no shorter than two years. And I have two kids and you have this window of opportunity and you need to know when to jump and when to stay, if that makes sense. So they want you to be so sick that you're on oxygen all the time and you have to meet certain criteria by literally failing tests. Um, But they want you to be healthy enough that you are able to do certain things physically so that your prognosis post-transplant and your uh, recovery is as successful as possible. So they won't transplant you if you're too sick, actually. And so I knew that at Columbia, the wait was going to be so excruciating and long, and my kids were going to watch me decay in front of their eyes. And I just remember when my CF doctor talked to me, she said, well, you know, you could go to Duke. And I was like, well, talk to me about that. What is, what's, what's the deal with Duke? And she said, well, it's in North Carolina and the wait list is about a month. And I was like, what is the difference? And I still cannot tell you why. I do know that recently there was a big expose on that in, in New York because so many people were having to leave the tri-state area to receive organ transplants of all kinds because the wait lists here are just so long and people are just dying. And, and so it, it, it became this, it became something I just knew that I had to do everything in my body, in my gut, in my spirit, everything. It was just like, yes, we are going to go, we're going to figure this out and we're going to go and we're going to have an adventure and that's it. So like I said, the wait lists up here are so long and I just knew that, that I wasn't going to make it. So we researched Duke and we, we literally had to to pack up our house. I mean, we we were renting at the time. I was packing for, I didn't even know how long I was going to be there. I didn't know if I was going to be there for three months, for five months, for five years. There were people who don't even come out of anesthesia for like three days. Like I, I just didn't know what the recovery was going to be like. Now this was in July. I was packing to go. I didn't know if I was going to be packing winter boots or a coat. I had no idea. I just had to wing it and we just had to go with it. And uh, Tim moved him and the kids out and I moved down to North Carolina with my dad. And it became this sort of grand adventure, like I said earlier, because of the mentality of my parents are like, all right, well, let's just make this fun. Like this could just end up being a big racket and just like another mountain and just a huge pain in the ass and just this traumatic event. Or we could make this as good as we can possibly make it. And I still look back on that time because I had such a positive experience, even though I had to leave my kids and my husband here, even though it was very painful in that way, it was still something that was such an incredible experience because you're far from home. You have to literally make a family out of people that you just meet. We were all going through it together. There was just a lot of good that came out of it. It's like this melancholy yeah. time, right? It, it's it's beautiful and it's painful and it's hopeful and it's all the feelings. And it, to tap back into that just feels 
sort of warm for me. It was a really great experience. And so, um, uh, so when I got there, you know, we had to find housing. I was lucky enough to be able to spend time with a good friend's dad who lived right by Duke. Like it was just this small yeah. miracle. <laughs> and uh, we were able to live with him for a bit. We found housing. And then I was in pulmonary rehab two hours, three hours a day for five days a week, exercising to get ready for my transplant. And Duke, another reason why I went down there is that there is no other center that I know that does transplants like this, where they prep you and they get you in shape before you go because they have done so many. I was number 1,900 oh. in terms of lung transplants at Duke and they know their shit. Like they know all the muscle groups you need when you're trying to get out of bed post-transplant, when you're walking, when your back is like all jacked up, they know all of it. And so they are some of the most brilliant people that I've ever met. And you would never know it because they're so humble too. And so I just, I am in such debt to the whole team, the whole village there. Wow. That's such a, an incredible story. Honestly, it's, it's such an incredible story. It's such a, a really, it makes you pause and ask yourself, how would I be if I were in that scenario? How would I react? And what would I do? And I think that's part of what makes hearing you talk about your own story, or just witnessing some of your recovery online. So amazing is that you want to see people who are still embracing life, even when it feels like life is just giving them hit after hit after hit, right? The people that I met in pulmonary rehab preparing for lung transplants, I have never heard one of them complain, not one. Everyone knew how lucky they were to be potentially given this next chance at the next step of their lives. And they were all different ages too. I was like probably the youngest one there. And so, you know, everybody was just hopeful and positive and nobody made a big deal about it. We all just were in it together. That's so incredible. And I, I just love to be able to hear that and that you're that you're able to share that story with me. Was there ever a point where you didn't want to keep fighting? So the answer is yes. And it was a minimal uh, point in time, thankfully. Um, it never occurred to me before transplant because just looking at my kids, there was just no way I wasn't going to fight like hell. Um, but post-transplant, you know, you are on so many kinds of medications and they're messing with your, your mental health. They're messing with your physical body. You are stricken with anxiety because you literally have someone else's organs inside your body. And, and my superpower before transplant was I knew my body so well. I knew everything about it. And all of a sudden you put something else in there and nothing's working right. And you just don't know what to expect. Does not matter how many classes you take on it or how many people you've spoken to. If you've never experienced it yourself, it is so easy to be bogged down with that anxiety and to have like an actual physical reaction to it. I just remember there were some nights where I would just be shaking all night and I just, I just couldn't sleep. And also, yeah. obviously, the meds. <laughs> but um, I remember calling my good friend who was sort of a peer mentor for me. And she had gone through transplant at Duke a few years prior. And so she prepped me for everything. She's wonderful. And I just remember saying, like, Andrea, like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, I just want to die. Like, this is harder. I feel worse now than I felt pre-transplant, like 
I, I, I don't want to do this anymore. And so she said, absolutely not. <laughs> you need to right now you make the choice and you're going to make the choice, whether you're going to live or you're going to die because your mentality is so important. You're going to block out that shit and you're going to just go. And this is what you have to do. You're going to hire a great therapist later and you're just going to do this. And that conversation, I'm clearly like still talking about it because it's just so easy to get into that trap, especially when your body is hijacked by other things. And uh, it was just great to have somebody to give me their reality check. And after that, I was I was really okay because I kept my eye on what was important. But it's hard to see death and, and all kinds of sickness and all that around you in a hospital. It was it, that yeah. was that was challenging. I love that, and I love that that ambition stayed with you the whole time. And also, not that it's great that you had that moment, but that when you had that moment, you had somebody there to reassure you and and really tell you to fight for it. Um, I think the other piece of it that really gave me pause was saying that you know somebody else's organ is inside of my body, and I'm I'm so squeamish. Like I'm the worst. I I'm the one who's covering my eyes and being like, tell me when it's over. Uh, you know, so I, I feel like for for me to think about that and the way you were describing having some anxiety about that and maybe not sleeping because of it, it's like I can understand a little bit because I ha- I am, for better and for worse, um, overly empathetic. And I think sometimes like I physically feel like were that to be me, I think I would be freaking out. You know, I think I would have that moment that you had because how can you not? You know it's not yours. When you go through the transplant process um, for cystic fibrosis, is it possible that you still deal with those same issues or is, like, is it directly related to the lung itself or do you still deal with some of those challenges you could potentially need another transplant at some point? Like what's the scenario there? Okay. So, so great question there. There's a, yeah, there's a lot of things I'm going to say about that. So um, you eventually need a transplant of the lungs because, and I'm not talking about other organs here. I'm just talking about a lung transplant. You need that as a CF patient because your lungs have failed and now your body is compensating so hard uh, that it, it's, you really are kind of a ticking time bomb at that time, at that point. And so you need new lungs. My body will always have cystic right. fibrosis because it's in my DNA and it's genetic. So other parts of my body, you might hear me sniffling. Like I still have like a runny nose from time to time, because again, my body is still coding for that. My DNA still makes that happen. So yeah, so there are other things that happen after transplant is not a cure. Um, And and a lot of times people need more than one transplant because you, once you're transplanted, you are on a cocktail of anti-rejection medications for the rest of your life, which to me, I'm like, you give me a, like a handful of pills and, and that's it two times a day. Like that's stupid easy. Of course I can do that. Like compared to the hours and the hours of, of, of treatments before and truly being so disabled where it was hard to do anything, of course, give me the pills. Like I'll take it, you know, but it does, you know, it's on, like I said, not a cure. And it also can lead to some, some strange, you know, things down the road. I have to be really careful with sun, for example, I'm like 20 times more likely to get skin cancer things like that. So when, when most people want to boost their immune systems, I don't want that because I don't want my immune system waking up, and I'm also using air quotes here, I don't want it to wake up and recognize that my, the lungs in my body don't belong to me. And so it's it's this 
balance. It's this game of keeping your white blood count and like the other parts of your um, immune cells in your blood, keeping them at like a safe level where you're not getting sick all day, every day, because it's not the end. And it, so there's no, I want to say there's no long-term relief. It's just nothing like it was pre-transplant where you are just bombarded every day from the minute you wake up until the minute you go to sleep. You know, now I can take my pills and like brush my teeth and get in bed. Okay. So before transplant, I would have to do an hour's worth of chest PT. This is at like nine o'clock at night when like everyone else is sleeping. I would start my treatments. It would be an hour of chest PT with aerosolized medications, not one, but probably two or three plus probably hooking up my IV medications for the night, plus probably hooking up my G-tube formula for the night. I mean, it, it starts to just take over your life. And so now I find it so easy and I'm so thankful for these things that like, I even take it for granted now. I'm like, I don't even think of the life that I had before. I just take pills and I rush yeah. and go to bed and that's it. <laughs> so, so it's pretty incredible. It's kind of like that looking out the window uh, in the hospital situation where, you know, these little things that we, that all of us, myself included, take for granted. It's, it, you know, may not be possible for people with chronic illnesses like cystic fibrosis. Wow. Uh, yeah. It's, I mean, it's really quite insane to think about the level of effort that goes into having a chronic illness. You have to do so many things just to live your life. Just it's matter of fact, like you have to do these things so you can live. So you're going to do these things or you have to do these things so you can live like relatively normally. Yeah, it was a non-question. It was just never an option. That's just what I did. And I had a job every single day. I worry about that for myself, God forbid, because like when you're like, all I have to do is take pills twice a day. And I'm like, I forget to take my pills. Don't put me on any kind of pedestals here either, because I definitely have alarms that go off all day to remind me. So, and you would do the same. Yeah, 100%. I love it. Kind of on that note, how do you find that you live your life differently now than you did before the lung transplant, aside from sort of those routines around the, your own care, but, you know, emotionally, are you kind of renewed in a way? And, and what did that do for you coming out of the transplant and sort of starting to try to get back into, you know, your, your old way of living or maybe not getting back to your old way of living, but finding a level of comfort with your new life. Finding a level of comfort with my new life. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. So it's it, it's funny and you wouldn't think about this. Um, but before a transplant, when you have so much on your plate and you just have this job to do every day and then you get better. And it reminds me of climbing a mountain only to get to the top and be like, well, what's up here? Like, I got here. I got here. We did it. We climbed it. Now what? You know, what is life like when you don't have that purpose, right? Like, you have to create and dig deeply and figure out what are you going to do with your life now? You know, you don't have this, this mountain to climb every day. And so it's, it's odd that the fight sort of no longer exists. Um, and so you have to sort of channel that angst and that need and that instinct to fight your fight versus flight has been activated mm -hmm. for so long that you have to figure out how you can tone that down because you don't need that as a coping and as a survival mechanism anymore. And actually that could cause you harm because you could just start fights for no reason. And that's not right. necessary. That's not <laughs> how you want it to live. Right. So, so, so yeah, I will say that I will say um, when I, when I got home 
Uh, we knew that my younger son like wasn't really speaking. And, and throughout my whole first year uh, back home, he was, he was diagnosed with um, high functioning autism. And so he's three and a half now, but at two, like he wasn't really speaking and, and there was just some concerns there. And so that quickly became my purpose. I didn't really have to dig too much for that because it was right in front of me. It, it was a tricky moment because I am somebody with a lot of faith. I'm a Christian. And, and I think that I sat with God and I said, like, wait a second, like, hold on. We just got through climbing Mount Everest as a family and come on, like we haven't even healed yet. I just got home and I have a behavioral therapist in my house telling me that my son probably has autism. And it took, it didn't take long for me because again, like with CF, like you get so used to dealing with news that changes your life continually and you get really good at processing stuff and just channeling it and filtering it and like okay let's make a plan you don't stew in things and I'm speaking generally here but it's true for a lot of my my friends at CF we just have to like deal with it and then like let's do you know make a plan and let's do this let's fight because that's what we've always done and so for me my my purpose became okay, how am I going to find meaning in this? And then it took a couple of days of me just being like a little bit upset about it. And then to say, wait a second, I am a teacher of children <laughs> with language-based learning disabilities. <laughs> like I have a background in functional nutrition. I, I'm like the perfect person for this job. And so, so for me, the purpose was how am I going to dig up what I used to know in my old life before and how am I going to apply it and give this kid the best life that I could possibly give him? And how can I be the best parent to him when I actually know what to do? Like, let him be sort of my project. So my, my goal right away was get my family back together. Let's heal as a family. And Let's like heal my son as much as, as I possibly can, because I know that there's so much that he has to give the world and it's trapped. Does that make sense? And so I felt really good about that. I found my, my purpose and my fight again. But even now, like as, as things have gotten so much better with him, um, I, I do struggle with like moments uh, of that. And, and what am I going to do? I have all these like these dreams and these desires that, you know, have lied dormant for so long. Like, how am I going to channel it? And so that remains to be seen. I may write, I may, you know, I may teach again. We'll, we'll kind of see. So it's a beautiful thing to be given a second chance at life because you have to make peace with God. In my perspective, when you are growing up with a chronic illness that you know is terminal, you have to do everything that you can to make sense of it. And like I said before, to find that purpose and that meaning and the suffering is the name of the game. And so, you know, you can be empowered by that and it's a daily choice. And so, um, you know, it helps me really connect to the big picture rather than focus on the minutia. Because as a young person, when you're dying, when everybody's starting their lives, I mean, you get to a point where you just must surrender. You can push it off until you get to a point and you just have to accept the fact that like you're dying. And if God doesn't somehow like show up as some sort of miracle, like you're gone your toast and that's it. And so most people experience that when they are in their 70s, 80s, 90s, God willing, right? If they're if they're 
healthy enough to get that far, but to, to do that and to make sense of it in your twenties and thirties, it's not cool to go to church. Like, no, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, I don't know very many people who do it, but for me, like it is my lifeline. It is so important for me, you know? And so, uh, and because of it, the, the thought that like, oh, this is somehow not fair. If it enters my mind ever, if, I mean, it's, it's for a fleeting moment because I just, I just know there's such a, a, a deeper meaning and a deeper, deeper purpose. And, and my goal is always just to like, give it all I have. Gosh, I, I love that. I love everything that you just said about that. And I also really appreciate you opening up about the fact that you are Christian and saying it because people have opinions on things. You know what the reality of the situation is that there has been a very unfair stigma, I think, placed on religion in general as sort of this definitive of who we are as people. Um, and so with that in mind, I would say, you know, like, I understand needing something to have faith in and to believe and to want to know there's an anchor that you can come back to when you're having a moment that feels inexplicable. So I was raised Catholic. I'm not a practicing Catholic. I very much would argue for the, you know, I'm more spiritual than religious thing, but there are moments where I have been so unbelievably fucking low and what do I do? I pray. And so it doesn't necessarily matter to me, at least that I'm not going to church, but that I have something that I can hold and, and give myself the space to sort of project or talk or, or get through some of those emotions by myself with the idea that there's something bigger happening around me. Um, I, I respect that and I appreciate that. So I'm, I'm glad that you opened up about that because I think it's important. We all have different mechanisms and things that help us through the hard times. And I think it's fair that that's something that, that you have and that you're able to express. And my goal isn't to tear people apart for what they believe if they're good human beings like what difference does it make you know I think the line can be drawn when somebody is a shitty person and maybe they just so happen to also have a certain characteristic you can absolutely be all of the things that you are and be Christian and be grateful for the fact that you know you've gotten through a lung transplant and that you have gratitude for that like good appreciate the world around you appreciate the things that have happened in the way that they've happened for you and it's hard because I kind of skirt around this a lot when I have conversations with people around trauma because things that have happened in probably the last two and a half years that if I actually outlined them I feel like people would be like what the fuck and you're like what am I here for like what is it that I need to do and those things can change those things can change and they do change because like the more that we open our minds and our hearts to other people and the world around us the more clear it becomes that we aren't necessarily here to do one thing, right? Like think if you get more comfortable with that like flow of the way things sometimes work out and sometimes they're totally shitty. Like, you know, you get a little less, you get a little less stunned by the really shitty things. You're like, they all suck. And don't get me wrong. Like I get a pit in my stomach thinking about that stuff, but it changes who you are and if you take your experience from something that is traumatic or extremely stressful, pull back from it and really ask yourself, what is it that you're reacting to? Like your experience in having to get a lung transplant, I mean, that's your mortality. That is your life. That is, you made a comment about, um, you know, being so young and just being, you know, staring down your own 
life. Like what, how much time do I have left? What can I do with this time? And how can I make it count? Like we should all be asking ourselves that, Elena, because I literally was walking my dogs the other day and I was like, any moment, any moment in time ever could be the moment that we're no longer here. We have this idea that we're so invincible until something sort of like rocks us to our core and every so often it tends to happen for me and then like once in a while I'm sort of just stunned by the fragility of life when those things aren't happening. That sometimes you feel so good and so safe and so comfortable and then you're like, oh my god, what if I lost it, you know? And so I think living with the idea that like you could lose it at any second is a really powerful way of becoming present and really enabling yourself to feel like you're serving a purpose for yourself and in driving from your core purpose instead of sort of what everybody else around you expects or or wants to chime in about and whatever that might be like you have to start deciding that like my life is for me and the people that I care about and like fuck all everything else. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's incredible. You touch on so many good things. <laughs> and as you're walking your dog, that type of thought, right? The thought of like, oh my gosh, like this could disappear. I could be hit by a truck. Statistically speaking, I am more likely to to pass away than you are because of my chronic illness, but not necessarily, right? Literally anything can happen. And I think another thing that just to piggyback off of that is that I've trained myself to do over time, you know, there's this corollary to the thought of, you know, let's look back and see how far we've come, which is so great. And it's so, so important to be grateful, but to also say to ourselves, things may never actually be this good again. Like in two years, we can look back and say, God, I didn't know how good I had it then. Like when you're talking about, and then for me, it was like lung function, right? It was lung function or health. And for other people, it may be something else. But that mindset shift, as morbid as it sort of sounds, it's not. It helps you stay present and be like, in a month, we could lose our jobs. In And especially right now in 2020, like just every day, make it a practice and a habit to be like, look around, like it may not be this good again. And, and all the things that I've wished for and prayed for, if I have them, let's just sit in that for a second and just be thankful. Cause there were days I didn't have what I have now. And there might be days where I don't have this again. Yeah. I know. I love that you touched on that too, because it's, it's so, so true. I mean, you, you don't know what's coming. And I was just listening to a podcast that referenced um, the Steve Jobs quote about how you can't connect the dots looking back or uh, forward, you can only connect them looking backwards. It's like, I don't know where the next dot's going to be. I can tell you where I anticipate maybe the next dot to be, but that dot might be like, nah, fuck that. I'm going this way instead. So it's like one of those things where we we react to our expectations of things a lot. And that's what I feel like I've realized so much more because the things that happened in our life that were traumatic were like very rapid fire and very persistent and like all unrelated. And so it was sort of like, bam, punch, bam, punch, bam, punch. Like, what are you going to do now? And it's like, how do you how do you not live in this just ultimate terror that something else is going to happen again? And frankly, like what you described is it. It's like you have to be grateful for what you have. And one of the things that was so monumental for me in therapy was my therapist saying to me, 
if you're getting overly anxious and you feel like you're going to start to panic, just start naming things that you're grateful for. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be something big. It could be like, I'm grateful for the chair that I'm sitting on so I don't have to sit on the floor. But just start listing things that you're grateful for because anxiety and gratitude can't exist at the same time. And so it's like if I'm starting to feel stressed out, I'm like, okay, what are we thankful for? This pen that I'm writing with right now. <laughs> you know, literally anything at all. Um, but but and, and I've even gotten to this practice of where like I'll get out of the shower put my towel on my head to dry my hair and I just start thinking of things that I'm grateful for. That's beautiful. Thank you. And I I have to say it's it's a lot of work and you give yourself the time to reflect on it and to think about it and to pause and to breathe and to let yourself live in those moments because so much of what we fear is something we can't change from the past or something we have no idea what it's going to be in the future. And so like we want to believe that we have so much more control than we do. And, And frankly, Elena, I feel like your story is such a good representation of that, that as human beings, we're like, well, I'm just going through day to day, whatever, no big deal. And you you were going through something that was so 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 significant while you were trying to do all of the while you were doing not just trying you were doing all the things the rest of us were doing who don't have cf and we're bitching and complaining about it and you're like oh i'm just happy to be alive and so like i really respect like that that you have you know the, the willpower and the drive and the desire to create a life of meaning and that you have so many things in your life that can bring attention to that and bring that back to you and give you that sense of self that is so so important to have at any point but especially when you go through something as deeply significant as just overall having cystic fibrosis going to get a lung transplant having to leave your family to go do that your children like I just really cannot say with enough emphasis how much I admire your strength your drive and who you are as a person to have such a positive outlook on the way that things played out for you because it's something that people need more of we we love to consume the crap we love to talk about the shit that's going wrong but like you said you were one of like 1900 lung transplants that's so many people who got a second chance at life and like I want to live with the kind of gratitude that somebody has when they go through something like that it's hard to to comprehend and if people don't share their stories then it's even harder for us to understand each other and it's why I wanted to create this show I want people to hear a story like yours and think to themselves, I can get through what I'm going through. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for having me and allowing me to tell my story. It was nice to process it and to be able to talk about it and sort of organize it in my brain um, because it all happened and you kind of just move on so fast because you're so grateful and everything just takes off. and, And it's good to just up and go back there in your mind and revisit everything. And so I really appreciate your, your, uh, curiosity about it and your respect and, uh, you know, just, just making a, a space for me to speak on it because, um, I think that it's a story that can influence a lot of people just by being human and having to fight for your life. Truly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being so real and raw and honest about something that's so personal to you. You are so welcome. And remember, I'm one of many, many people with stories just like this. Not a pedestal, but more just gratitude that you are willing to share and that you have the strength that you do, that you are here now and you are making the most of it. And I am, I'm very proud to know you. 
Well, gang, that's all for this episode of the Who the Fuck podcast. A big thank you to Elena for sharing her story and her time. Visit whothefck.com slash donate to support the Bonnell Foundation, whose purpose is to provide tools to navigate the difficulties of living with CF by connecting families with resources during their journey. Plus, make sure you subscribe to the Who the Fuck podcast wherever you listen, and if you haven't yet, go ahead and share a little love by rating the show too. Until next time. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric cast. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives' activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electric Cast production. Electric Cast.